Hello. Welcome to the Plus Future podcast with me, James Napulsing. A large part of coaching is helping the client identify their goals and to facilitate ways of achieving something way beyond what they originally thought was possible. So what do you do when you coach someone who has no goals? You'll see in this episode how this plays out. This was very much uncharted territory for me. It put me completely out of my coaching comfort zone, and I love experiences like that. As always, I set out the main coaching ground rules before the recording. Let's get right in. So, Kenny Shacks, so welcome to the Plus Future podcast. For the listeners at home who don't know who you are, would you just like to explain a bit about yourself? Well, I am a writer and artist and a teacher and a curator, and I'm self-taught in all the above. So we'll see. You make out what you will when we're done here. Excellent. A bit of a polymath. So, um, Kenny, what bump in the road are you facing at the moment that you'd like to talk about today? Well, I would say my whole career is a bump in the road, even though I've carved out a role for myself that didn't really exist before. I mean, everything I do is under the rubric of art, some form of an art practice. I'm completely self-taught. And as I mentioned, and I'm a professor at University of Zurich, NYU School of Visual Arts, and I lecture pretty much all the time all over the map. The next one is coming up in a, in a few days in Detroit at a contemporary art museum. And I would say the bump in the road is just because the art world is such a judgmental place where everyone is pigeonholed according to preconceived compartments of where you should fit in. Because I do different things, it's always been a way for people to dismiss me rather than to look seriously at any one role that I'm undertaking at a given moment. So I've always made art, videos and digital art. And I used to include it in the group exhibitions I curated for the first 15, 20 years of my career, although it was never entirely taken seriously. And I've always been writing since the beginning and teaching. And I write to give meaning to some of the more mundane activities I partake in in the art world. And I teach to learn. I love to share information and I think it's my responsibility and I'm compelled to spend my life learning and then sharing all the information that I've gathered to help people, inspire people. And I love to facilitate opportunities for other artists and people interested in the arts in one form or the other. Because I made digital videos and two-dimensional computer-manipulated images, as soon as I cottoned on and got wind of NFTs about two years ago, I jumped full on into that practice. But before then, over the past 10 years, I invented my own platform, and that was to embed my videos and two-dimensional computer-manipulated imagery into my writing. So it was really, in a sense, something like a political cartoon, or they were conceptual, and they dealt in some illustrative fashion in relationship to the content of my articles. But really, all along, I've always really wanted to be uh, to, de- to be taken seriously as an artist. And the art world is so judgmental and so critical. I'm a critic as well, but uh, 
to the point that I couldn't even, I wouldn't even say I was an artist until the last couple of years because no one took me seriously. And in the end, the result was that I didn't take myself seriously. So I guess there are no bumps. Life is a bump in the road to life. And the struggle and the journey is all part of it. So there's really nothing I would change. It's just very difficult at this stage of my life. Let's generously call it late middle age. It's hard to like fully change gears and re-gear my practice to uh, being a full-on artist. And I'm really a 60-year-old emerging artist trying to develop a market over the past couple of years since NFTs have enabled me to be able to create opportunities in selling my work outside of the art system traditionally. What I'm getting there is a sense that you've almost been by yourself an outlier, an outsider. You're self-taught. You've created various platforms by yourself in teaching, writing and art. But your your struggle is people dismiss you when you want people to take yourself seriously. Sounds like you've been very successful in the last two years for NFTs. And it's said that you, you've almost become an emerging artist, whereas before um, you, you always practiced art, but you weren't taken seriously. But it seems like you, you've got this recognition that you've had in the last two years. So when you hear yourself talking about all these experiences, what strikes you as the most important thing for us to explore today? I'm in a great place right now, relatively speaking. I mean, it's a hustle and a struggle to sell art. And it always is and it always will be. And again, like I set my own obstacles and my own way to overcome them. And I mean, in the next two months from where from where I sit today, I have a big installation in the Armory Art Fair in New York with the German gallery that basically the whole situation of that relationship of representation came about as a result. It's oddly enough when I started to sell, well, not oddly when you really dissect it, but when I started to develop a market to sell my NFTs on Nifty Gateway and various other NFT platforms, the fine art world took notice. And I re really, the art world understands one thing, and it's not even art, it's money. So when people sold an NFT for 69 million, then the art world, that, that firmly placed digital art and NFTs in particular on the radar of the traditional art world. So when I had some success and started writing about it, I've written about, I don't know, over a dozen features on NFTs in the last two years. I was able to curate a show at a renowned gallery in Cologne, and that gallery ended up embracing technology-based media and opened an NFT gallery in Berlin. And I'll be doing a big installation in the Armory Fair that opens in September. And subsequent to that, in, early, in the first week of October or thereabouts, I'll do a large-scale installation in one of the most prominent museums in Europe, the Kunsthalle in Zurich, and they're doing probably the most significant institutional NFT survey that's ever uh, been done to date. And I'll have a 20-foot wall installation with multimedia works in that show, and that's pretty much the crowning achievement of my career so far. So yes, there are obstacles, but obstacles, like I said, I mean, I don't shy away from them and I'm not moaning about them. That's life and that's life no matter what you do. And everyone is faced with professional and personal tragedies and, and 
bumps in the road and, and setbacks. And how you relate to them really defines who you are and what you are. So I have a lot of perseverance. I don't take no for an answer. And I have tenacity. And I think those are the key attributes which contribute towards me continuing to be on this ever-improving path that I seem to be on. It sounds like you've reached the pinnacle of your career. You've got an installation coming up in New York, Cologne, and you say that's the best you've ever achieved in your life, in your career. And life is full of bumps and you've got, you've got resilience there. You, you face life's adversities. To what extent have you achieved everything you've wanted in life then? Because it sounds like you're at the top of your game. Well, I mean, the show is in Zurich coming up, but I don't believe in, I mean, I'm not looking for anything. There's no, I don't have goals. I mean, I've never really planned anything. I don't know what I'll be doing in November, December, January, February. All I know pretty much are the concrete plans I have through October or even like the middle of October. So really, I mean, I'm I'm hardly at any pinnacle. I, I have some great accolades and opportunities that are upcoming in the short-term horizon, but I just want to continue to do what I'm doing and maybe be better remunerated for like developing a base of support and more continuity in uh, having my work collected in a more serious fashion. But again, I'm not here to complain or, or to lie on the couch and say that anything is remiss or not. Like it's, I can't say it's going according to plan, because there is no, the only plan in my life is art. I want to live a life in art. I have carved out a way, whether it's collecting art over the last 30 years and then selling it piecemeal. When I moved from London to New York three years ago, as a kind of joke, I had an online auction at Sotheby's called The Hoarder. So everything I do is sort of conceptual and relates to a, an analysis of the art world, art practice, artists, museums, galleries, collectors, all of the kind of machinations and goings on of the art world is really the field within which I focus on and, and spend most of my time thinking about and dissecting and analyzing. So anyway, this I managed to make a sale at an auction house become a conceptual event. Calling something a hoarder is like a pejorative term. But it ended up, I mean, that was before that was when online auctions were at the lowest rung of the hierarchy of prestige in the art world. But after COVID, billions of dollars ended up being sold online. And now I have my fourth quarter sale coming up in December. Actually, so I lied. There is something else, something in December at Sotheby's online. And I have no reserve. So I wouldn't define it as a money-making enterprise, but more as like an opportunity for me to create a kind of liquidity event where that helps me to continue to write, make art and teach. So like Malcolm X in his political activism, it inspired me when he said, I mean, this sounds stupid and pretentious and maybe I shouldn't even say it, but any means necessary. And I think that you find in life your passion, mine is art, and then you use any means at your disposal to create the role that you envision, you have one life and I'm not going to be dictated on how I live it according to any outside conventions. So yes, I'm an outlier. Yes, I am an outsider, even though I'm entrenched in the inside at this point. But my mentality will always be that of someone from the outside. And again, like 
I'm just doing what I've always wanted to do. And the opportunities come with hard work and perseverance. So your life is based around what you essentially love, which is art. And that even translates to, for example, the Hoarders exhibition, because that in itself is a performance art, almost. Exactly. Which, is, which yes. sounds fantastic. And you're smiling because you're obviously enjoying what you're doing. You mentioned that you want to be better remunerated. Could you just explore a bit more about that? What, what did you mean by that? Well, you know, again, I'm very, very appreciative and grateful for where I am today. I happen to be in the Bahamas guesting, but on my way back to New York, to prepare for these shows and do a lecture in Detroit. But sure, it would be great in the best of all possible worlds that my art would sell for more money. I mean, I just don't care, basically. I love, like I said, I'm wildly passionate about art and my family and that's it. I don't go to films terribly often. I mean, I'm a one trick pony and art defines pretty much my existence. I mean, it's courses through my circulatory system so sure, it would be great to sell my artwork for 50 grand or something. But at the same time, I get as much satisfaction selling NFTs in the clean blockchain called Tezos on a platform called object.com. And I sell my work for 20 to, to Tez, which is like $1.50 for, for one Tezos. And I get as much joy and satisfaction selling a work for $30 as I do for 20,000, which is pretty much, I mean, I sold a music video I made about all of the criticisms in the NFT space called Money, Money, Money. And that sold for nearly $20,000. And that was great. That was, I was blown away and in disbelief and gratitude. But again, like I'm not in this game for money because if I was looking for money, I would have stuck to being a lawyer or one of the other millions of different things I've done from working on the floor of the American Stock Exchange to being in the fashion world. But to be able to just sustain myself and pay my bills through selling my art, that would be a dream. And that happens in the past two years from NFTs more than again, then I had no notion when I got involved with NFTs, I'm probably the only one that didn't do it for money alone. I just thought it would be a great way to disseminate my work further. And I made $4,000 the first time I did it on Nifty Gateway two years ago. And that was that was completely unexpected. Then I had some subsequent tremendous successes. And then the market crashed and it all kind of evaporated. I still couldn't care less. I mean, I had a good run. And now I'm continuing to cultivate more opportunities as a result of these previous experiences. I'm going to challenge you a bit here, Kenny, if that's okay with your permission. By all means. I'm, I'm getting a sense of contradictions. So, I'm a walking contradiction. Exactly, which um, I want to delve into a bit more of that just to see what's behind it. So before you were saying you just love what you do, you do art, you, you're living, breathing art, you don't really care about anyone else, but then you want recognition at the same time. And now you said you wanted to be better remunerated, but now you're saying you couldn't really care less because you just live, breathe <laughs> art. So what, what's going on here? Well, look, I mean, again, I'm a human being with the same desires as the next person. So recognition is the same like jumping into a swimming pool and asking your parents to watch you is a very primal urge to be loved. So getting recognition from my peers is probably disproportionate in my scale of objectives and things that bring a great deal of satisfaction. I mean, you shouldn't 
be reliant on others for your own notion of your self-worth, but I'm not going to deny that it's not important to me to get a critical response to what I do to get reviewed and to get collected. So yes, I'm filled with contradictions. I'm the first to admit it. And I think making mistakes and failing and making a fool of yourself is something that is necessitated to be successful in any career. You have to take risks in life. So sure, I mean, maybe I have a disproportionate amount of the need to be loved and recognized by my peers, especially in light of the fact that I never went to art school or took an art class until I was teaching my first art history class in 1992 at the new school. And with the money, I mean, we live in a culture which is sadly and pathetically, reductively, entirely defined by monetary performance. It's like measuring your sexual prowess. How much money do you make? And again, like, I'm not looking to make a billion dollars. I couldn't care less. And I've never met a nice billionaire in my life who ever did it humanistically. And again, like, I just want to be able to carry on taking care of my family and myself and living, living the way that I live and continuing to have the resources to do what I want to continue to do in art and fabricating works and producing works, especially in the digital space has a cost attached to it. So I would like to just have source streams of income from that result from, you know, not doing things I'm less inclined to want to do. I always joke that I can't, I'm the worst art dealer that ever dealt art. I can't sell drugs to a drug dealer. I'm not a salesman by nature. And my personality is very much geared towards being, let's say, eccentric, or I do what I want to do, how I want to do it. And it doesn't always please everyone. And how I made my reputation in the first instance is to be forthright to the point of having lawsuits threatened against me and people trying to beat me up in restaurants on occasion, which have all happened, including a few death threats here and there. And that's because I simply express myself and I have an opinion, which is in a very unusual position to have in the art world today. So sure, I'm filled with contradictions, but my actions speak more than my self-negating personal emotional issues. So you're obviously full of passion, full of opinions that have made people want to take lawsuits against you, beat you up in restaurants and give you death threats as well. I'm noticing some themes coming up, like you mentioned family twice. So it seems that a really important part of your life is his art. And to sustain those two things are, seem quite fundamental to you. And you mentioned streams of income there, and it sounds like you want to cut back on things that you don't really like doing. And you mentioned you couldn't sell drugs to a drug dealer. Um, to what extent is dealing in art one of those things that you want to cut back on? Well, I'd rather not deal in any art other than minting my own NFTs. I mean, that's one for all the bullshit rhetoric attacking crypto and NFTs, which is incessant. The upside is that people like me, and there's literally millions of people that have made stuff in their life and been able to sell it directly to a public through the process of minting an NFT on whatever blockchain. There's plenty of them. Not all of them are environmentally detrimental. We're due to have uh, a shift in Ethereum uh, coming up in the middle of September that would make Ethereum completely less invasive in the environment, which would be, I mean, it's about time. I just think that, like you said, my family, my kids are extraordinarily important to me. 
And that is the most meaningful part of my life is to, I had four kids and I lost a kid over three years ago. And that's one of the most devastating, unspeakable things that could ever occur to anybody in life. It probably is the most devastating thing. And I have three other kids that sustain me as well. And art is the sustenance with continuing to ensure the well-being of my existing children. And I do that through my work and my support for my family. So really, it's like a tight little universe of trying to foster the well-being of, of them, of my kids and myself. And I do that through my work and through taking time and consideration to be a good parent to my kids. Thanks, Kenny, for opening up. And I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, so if we, if we look at your tight universe that you're creating, what other options do you have available to cut out the, the BS that you don't really want, that you don't enjoy? All right, that was the question. Dealing art. I just continue to be focused. And you can't think about money and you can't do things for money. It never works. Anytime I've ever tried to specifically engage in something for the sake of making a quick buck, blows up in my face and it never it never really pans out. You know, if I have to sell art to continue to do what I love to do, so be it. That's what I'll do. I've collected art incrementally over 30, almost 35 years in the art world, and I continue to do so. And if I have to sell it piecemeal and do hoarder sales for the rest of my life, I'm prepared to do that. If I develop an art market where creating things using my own devices would enable me to not have to do those other things. That's great. But that's not going to stop me from doing what it is. I mean, I would be basically doing the same thing today and tomorrow and the next day, whether crypto and NFTs existed or not, or whether I had any uh, relationships with art galleries or the art market. I always found a way to do things and I, and I will continue to do so. So what legacy do you want to leave behind? I mean, I'm more concerned with the here and now and my performance and my activities in my lifetime. When I'm dead, I don't care if I'm liquidated <laughs> physically and materially before the body gets cold. I really don't care. I'm not living. Sure, it's it's a pleasant thought to, that I'll be read or considered after my demise, but I really don't care. And I, I probably doubt that I will. But my legacy... If I was going to characterize it, I would hope that it would be for someone who cared, for someone from my teaching and my helping other artists and, and the students that I work with. And I thesis advise students. And I always say, including to any of your listeners, uh, and this has been throughout the entirety of my career, if anybody contacts me for any reason, I always do my best to try to help someone. And I always say that it takes the same amount of energy to say no as it does to say yes. And the busier I am, the more I'm able to accomplish, I find. I love my work. It's my only pleasure. For me, a holiday is a good Wi-Fi signal because I'm constantly writing. I'm writing a book on NFTs now. That's another thing I left out. I'm in the midst of it right now, and I'm due to finish by the end of the year. So I would just hope my legacy would be someone who helped to facilitate opportunities for others and had a critical voice and an opinion in a world which has largely, those things have gone missing, unfortunately, in the recent term in the art world. Everyone just seems increasingly focused on 
the economics of art rather than the art of art. So the legacy you want to leave behind. At first, you said uh, you know you don't really care because you'll be liquidated, almost like a liquidated no, stop asset. Stop telling me that I contradict myself the whole time. <laughs> but you, you've got amazing generosity. You've obviously helped me out as well by joining this podcast. I really thank you profusely for that. And you help your students. You're very productive as well. You're writing a book on holidays. You said your holidays are like Wi-Fi um, and you want to be, be known as like a critical voice there. What else? What other options do you have to improve your current performance? Well, I think I'm I mean, you could always do more work and always be more focused. I mean, I'm in the middle of this writing deadline. I'm a wee little bit behind, but I'm on top of it. And really, I just believe that with like I said, with dedication and continued focus. I mean, if I could be working 24 hours a day for the rest of my life, however much remains of it, that would be the way that I would choose to spend my time. So I just think being as productive as humanly possible would be the goal that I have in the short and medium and long term. I just want to continue to be as fruitful and productive as I conceivably can before I can't, which is probably sooner than later. Those two passions you've got, one's your family, one's art, you're very dedicated to both. How do you balance the two? Well, again, I mean, there's very much a natural equilibrium to focus and apply yourself to anything takes one thing and it's time. So, I mean, I have to put in the time to help my kids and make sure they're okay. That takes phone calls and spending physical time. And really, that's it. So... I mean, it's a, it's not that I schedule a block of time. And I mean, I'm a very ad hoc in the actual how my life actually unfolds. I very much believe in like, as long as I maintain my overall long-term focus, everything else will fall into place. So like I said, I don't know explicitly what I'll be doing in the spring, but I know that with the nature of my focus and how I continue to... I mean, through the fall and all of the opportunities that I'll be doing, other opportunities will flow from those activities. So again, it's just really keeping a straight line in terms of what it is I'm doing. I want to continue to make as much art as I possibly can and write as much. And with those activities come other other opportunities. So yeah, I mean, with my kids, holidays are always spend together as much as possible. And then I want to make sure they have what they need emotionally, financially, and uh, professionally to be able to achieve their goals and desires. So it sounds like the, the path you've got is if, if you lay down a path where the art is the central focus, it makes you happy and it makes everyone else happy and everything falls in place. And then you build time around your family with holidays and just spending time with them in general. What more could you be doing with your family, do you think? An artist that I very much like, I've written about and curated is Paul Tech, an American artist who died in the 90s from, or died in 1988 from AIDS. But he made a drawing that said, there's nothing but time. Mm. And that has two meanings. There's nothing but time could on one sense mean there's an infinite amount of time. And on the other hand, there's nothing but time. It's really metaphysically, and experientially, that's all you have is this limited time on earth, which is a very short period. So really, in terms of my career and in terms of my family, 
it's the same underlying element that fuels both of them, the furtherance of my relationship with my kids and my work, both necessitate spending time. And yeah, that's pretty much all there is. There's a time you have on earth and how you apportion spending it. Could we just get a bit more practical in that sense? So if you look at the week you've got ahead of you now, how are you allocating your time between those two things, your family and the art? Well, I mean, today is Wednesday and my kids are now scattered throughout three countries. My oldest, Adrian, is 26 and he has his first major one-person exhibition. He graduated from the School of Visual Arts and he's showing in Florence in Italy at a gallery called Aminata, which is owned by the grandson of Cy Twombly with a few other partners. And like I said, I'm here working for a few more days and then I'm off to New York to get some work done and prepare for a lecture in Detroit, which is on the 6th of September. Then I return early on the 7th and then I go directly to the Jacob Javits Center in New York to install, finish the installation of my armory art fair exhibition, all the while preparing for this museum show in October. So I guess in the next month, I mean, I'll go directly from New York to arrive in Italy in time to celebrate Adrian's opening. Sage, my youngest, is a student in the School of Visual Arts in New York. And Gabriel, he's 20. And then my 23-year-old Gabriel is now in London. And he's casting around for what he's going to do next. University wasn't quite for him. He was in and out of NYU, mostly out, I should say. And now I'm trying to help him. And together we're trying to, I mean, I'm trying to help him focus on what it is he wants to do in the next couple of years and to make sure that he's set with some kind of job opportunity that he's happy with, that makes him feel content and gives him some focus. So you've got Adrian is 26 and he's got an exhibition in Florence. Yes. You're going from the Bahamas to New York to Detroit. And in New York, you're going to do your installation for the Armory. And then you've got Sage, who's 23, and he's in the school. No, Sage is 20. Oh, he's 20, sorry. In School of Visual school Arts of Visual in New York, Arts. and Gabriel is 23. Gabriel's 23 in London. in London. Okay. So if we look at those three children, who needs the most priority out of all of those? Well, I mean, my kids are all adults, and I'm not here to publicly speak about their private lives. But... Kids needs, need nurturing. We all need to be nurtured from the moment we're cognizant to the moment we're not, or even we need nurturing when we're ill in, in the late stages of our lives. So we all need help. We all need support, whether it's them or me. And in our own way, we can all benefit from having someone care about us. This is quite an interesting coaching conversation. You're one of these rare people who probably doesn't need coaching because it sounds like you've got the perfect life. Well, nothing is perfect. And I mean, part of my role on this planet is to be a coach myself. I mean, I've never thought of it like that until speaking to you. But coaching other people, I find is very satisfying and a way to derive a great deal of joy in life is to help other people. I like when people reach out to help me, or like you reaching out to speak to me, you're thanking me, but I'm grateful that Somebody wants to hear from me and listen to me and it helps me. Every time I have a conversation, I learn about the person I'm speaking to, like you, and I learn about myself by, you know, explicating all the all these questions you're asking me 
will help me in some respect. And so in that regard, like, I think we're all coaches for ourselves and yet we all need to have an open mind to benefit from the advice from other people. And if more and more people were open-minded to such input, then the world would be a better place. So my life is far from perfect. I've had unspeakable tragedies that no one should have to experience, but what can you do? I mean, I'm here, I'm trying to deal with it and to make the best of my lot in life. Mm. So you said you've learned about yourself through this conversation. Could we just explore that a bit? What, what have you learned? From answering or doing my best to answer in my own special self-negating, <laughs> contradictory fashion. I mean, just to try to, to make me focus on these issues of what's important, why it's important, what could be improved, and what seems satisfactory. It's giving lip service and spending time to consider what I could be doing better, mm. the priorities I have in my life, to even hear them articulated by myself or by you, it's helpful because it just, again, it adds to uh, think what has weight in my life and what should have more and what should have less. So I think having less weight would be collecting art and selling art. That's the lowest of the totem pole. And the highest is spending time to give a loving environment and helping my kids fulfill their vision of how they want to spend their lives while all the while trying to further my professional career. Mm, that's quite a powerful thing. So when you hear yourself saying that, what do you think would be different by the end of our conversation today if we fully explore all of those things you've mentioned just there? I better get down to writing more <laughs> and stop procrastinating. What writing are you going to focus on? Was this your book you mentioned? Yes, there's a there's an author who's a scholar from Cambridge and the Courtauld Institute, and he approached me initially about an interview for a book that he was considering. His expertise is in varies from Renaissance art and Chinese art to art crimes. And in the end, he decided rather than interviewing me for his book that we would co-write the book. And the way we're doing it is we're writing alternating paragraphs, uh, chapters, I should say, sorry, and I'm writing about my experience over the last two years in the NFT world. So I am one chapter in and I'm three chapters behind. Got it. Is this the tutor who's always on TV, by the way? Uh, his name is Noah Charney. He does BBC stuff. Yeah. I know. But I'm not sure if that's the person you have in mind. It is. He's quite well known in the UK. That sounds like quite an exciting book. Are you allowed to say all of this or, or do we need to take it out of the podcast? Everything I say is for the record. I'm an, I'm an, speaking of books, I'm an open one. Okay. And I have very few, if any, secrets in my life. I try to live my life as I write about it, as I write about the art world, which is, I mean, my life is an open book. And if I'm going to be a critical voice in relationship to my peers and the other professionals in the art world, I should be prepared to live by that rule myself. And I just wanted to go back because I've listened to your other podcasts that you've done quite recently as well. Well, you said just now that, for example, people used to try to have fights with you in restaurants and you were known as a, as a bit of a, a bit of, I don't know how to describe it, maybe a troublemaker. Provocate, exactly, provocateur. Provocate. To what extent has that shifted as you got older? It hasn't. It hasn't at all. Okay. <laughs> I mean, in the stupidest, most like bubblegum psychology way, my mother passed away when I was very young of cancer when I was 13. And my father was a terribly unsupportive, 
person in relationship to my life. And like, we didn't spend any time. I never received any encouragement. In fact, he tried to dissuade me from carrying on in my art career in the early stages when I was having bumps, bigger bumps in the road. What was your question again? I'm losing my time. To what extent are you being less of a provocateur as you get older? Oh, so I was overweight and I stuttered. So part of the reason I never shut up now is because I had a hard time articulating and expressing myself throughout much of my early life into early adulthood. I really only ever had human intercourse conversations when I did something wrong. So it was like this negative affirmation. And, oh, I did plenty of things wrong from crashing cars and failing out of school and having quite a drug and alcohol habit well into my life. And in a way, I wonder in the most basic kind of childish way of interpreting all of that, the only input I got from outside of myself was when I did something wrong. So this negative, when I got yelled at or punished from my behavior And in a way, I wonder if some of my writing, which is constantly poking the bear, is a continuation. That's one of my kids. Hang on. Hi, on the phone. All right, I'll call you back. I love you. (laughs) Anyway, so like, I wonder if like a lot of times I'm not poking people just to get a reaction. Mm. But a lot of what I do is in specific relationship to the hypocrisy that I find in the art world. And I'm constantly... You know, I critique myself as much as I do everybody else, and I'm hard on myself, but I don't want to spend the rest of my life, you know, critiquing other people or criticizing them. And that's why over the past two years, since having more success in my own art career has enabled me to focus less on these articles that, I mean, I guess I never set out to be this person that steals information from the rich and gives it to the aspiring rich or has this role of a gadfly in the art world. But the more I just wrote articles like this, and as my readership expanded in lockstep with the kind of expansion of social media where my writing became more accessible to ever wider audiences, the feedback was in fact so positive, it egged me on and encouraged me to take it further and further to the point where, because I'm not reliant on anyone to make a living in the structured art world, it gave me license to basically say what I wanted. And yeah, sometimes people were quite unhappy with the extent of my reportage. But again, more people than not were appreciative that someone actually had a point of view, which very few people go to the point of publicly expressing nowadays. As I mentioned before, I'm not a qualified psychiatrist or psychologist or therapist. You mentioned that the provocative nature of you is like almost poking someone for attention. Was that what you said there? Well, again, like the art world is a pretty fucked up place and it has a lot of duplicity. And I frequently say it's like Omerta in the mafia where there's, I mean, nobody expresses themselves no one talks about these unwritten and unspoken rules and regulations of behavior and how to conduct yourself in the art world. Very simple things from the machinations of art deals and how things transpire in the in galleries and uh, museums. And so in a way, I'm really just pulling back the curtain to express what I have seen through my, because I am a rare bird in relationship to having 
from, I mean, I'm a professor, I'm, I'm an art dealer, I've been a curator, an artist, all of these disparate activities that I've engaged in. So it gives me a very unique perspective in relationship to other people. So I'm able to shed light on these on these different spheres of activity in the art world that not many people can speak of from pure experience or rather that would for that matter because they're too cautious in their professional lives. And I have more abandoned because I've found a way that I've collected lots of art over the decades and I'm able to find a way Sotheby's and Christie's will sell anything. They'd sell a pair of dirty underwear <laughs> if they were the market for it. They don't really care who you are or what you are as long as they can do due diligence and know their, know your client and satisfy any money laundering regulations, et cetera. So I find ways like a, you talk about bumps. I'm not interested in the bumps. I'm interested in finding ways around obstacles mm -hmm. and maneuvering in the face of roads that seem ostensibly closed off, finding ways to get through these barriers and to be able to live the life that you envision for yourself. So you pull back curtains and you like to find ways around obstacles. If I gave you a magic wand now, what's the perfect life for Kenny Shakta and the art world? What would you change? Well, I wouldn't change anything. I would just want a happy and a healthy existence for my children. And for myself, I can't complain. Sure, I could say I'd rather be, you know, an art star or an auction performer, but that's really not what I'm about. I mean, I have an audience, thankfully, that I've painstakingly put together, clawed my way to, cobbled together over the years through my writing, my teaching, and my curatorial work and my own artworks. So, I mean, I would just like to have the opportunity to continue what I'm doing now and to do it better and more of. So you wouldn't change anything, you'll continue what you're doing now, but just do it better and do more of it? Yes. I mean, there's nothing that I want to do that I'm not, I mean, I have, I'm preparing for a, a museum installation, which is a great, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. I never dreamt that I would have such opportunities. I've been in three Basel art fairs already. That was something that I never imagined that would ever happen in my lifetime. I all but gave up hope of making a living off of my art. And I'm not entirely making, I mean, I did for one, one and a half great years of the NFT market. And that almost, I would say that dissipated since the crash recently of crypto. But that's just a minor setback. Mm. So, of course, I could say that I'd rather be doing better, more, blah, blah, blah. But that's really not how I think. I just want to continue to have my nose down. To be inspired is a gift and to be able to continue to learn and share. Excellent. So you're creating something in a museum, which you never dreamed of doing before. You've had three bucks. No, my artwork, my artwork will be in the oh, museum. Oh, your artwork's there. Even... That's fantastic. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much. And you got, you've had three basils and then the NFT. It, bars, I don't know how to pronounce these posh words. Sorry. <laughs> and then <laughs> it's not a posh word. It's a city. <laughs> Shows how much I know. And the NFTs, well, um, no you've had your success for one and a half years and it, it petered You're out. You're a lawyer. You know plenty. I, I, know, I know nothing, Kenny. I should start giving you a little analysis in the same way you've put the focus on me. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about that we didn't explore today, Kenny? 
Well, I think we're almost we've almost clocked an hour. So yeah, five more minutes. If there's anything you would like to say or ask. Going out of coaching mode because um you know I love art like you do as well. Where do you see things going in the art world? Well, the art world is the most boring traditional environment that I, I ever could have dreamt of. And I think NFTs and technology are a great hope for innovation and NFTs have pissed off a lot of people because it's encroached some of the traditional territory previously controlled by the art world, which is access and who gets to determine value. So I'm very hopeful that there will be more innovation and a more level playing field in terms of access and more accessibility for a wider range of people from more disparate geographical regions from more walks of life. I mean, there's been great opportunities for women and artists of color and uh, different orientations, culturally, politically, sexually in the art market, in the traditional art market. And the crypto art world is very much behind in that sense. I mean, I just think everyone should be able to do what they want to do, how they want to do it. And that's why I love to coach people myself and teach them or teach them about how to use the tools that exist to further their own expectations and interests. So my hope is things continue to unfurl and the art world becomes a little bit less conservative and constrained and more open-minded in relationship to embracing new technologies. My final question, what advice would you give to a young artist who say has just graduated from art school? I mean, that's a, I can go for another two hours on that because in the past, you would used to have to send a plastic sleeve with 20 photographic slides to express your visual output from one human being to the other. And the advent of social media and NFTs have changed all that. So when I go to art schools and do critiques, which is quite regularly, it would never occur to me to repeat what I had previously taught 10 years before, which would be find a like-minded gallery or clique of people that have shared spheres of interest and in that way pursue your professional art career through trying to ingratiate yourself with an existing gallery. And now things have become more do-it-yourself than ever. And the tools to pursue such a path have never been stronger and more powerful. So I would encourage artists to not look to the existing uh, structure of the art world and to take matters into their own hands. There's more empty storefronts because of the, I mean, tragedy of COVID and the structural shift to more online commerce. There's more empty storefronts. And I would always say create hybrids and and mix NFTs with physical shows, getting together with peers and friends and banding together and doing taking things into your own hands. It's the only way. And never take no for an answer and never get discouraged because the all world is all about the only word it knows more than any other word is the word N-O. No, you can't do this, say that, behave this way or that way. So I just think that one should take advantage of these tools that are unfolding at an extraordinarily rapid pace and put them into effect to accomplish whatever it is in any walk of life, in any realm that you're interested in pursuing. Thank you. Your good friend Jerry Saltz gave me advice when I sent him some of my artwork. Do you know hear what he wrote? Sure. He wrote, good but still quite generic. Make your own work. Fail as yourself. Read my idiot little book, How to Be an Artist. Spray to go wings, man. Great advice.
Well, yeah, great advice. Buy my book. I like it. But I mean, in a way, like an artist has to find their own voice. And I think that that's a very crucial point, kernel of information that I frequently, not in the same language, but said things similar in nature that I just think, yeah, having a fresh approach and finding a personal means of expression in a language that's, I'm, I'm not saying that one has to be like that. I don't, I'm not focused on originality or anything like that, but you need to have a unique point of view and it, uh, your own personal expression for what it is you want to say and how you want to say it. And in that sense, all of the advice he gave was pretty spot on. Mm. Thank you very much. And on that note, I'm conscious of your time as well. So thank you very much, Kenny Schachter, for joining the Plus Future podcast. Thank you for having me. That was such a fascinating conversation for a ton of reasons. I love a good challenge and I knew Kenny would be an exciting person to coach. His brain is so fast, you never know where his conversation is going to go. Halfway through, I thought Kenny was what we call not coach ready. In other words, he didn't need my help as his plan of having no plan seemed to be working absolutely fine for him. The surprising moment for me came when he said the conversation was actually useful as it made him think about what his priorities actually are. I suspect the value Kenny got out of this session was articulating just how much he's doing and then going away to think about to what extent does he actually have goals or priorities. Is there another way of living rather than being pulled down a path driven by his passions? I want to say a massive thank you to Kenny for giving up his time. He's one of the most generous people I've encountered and it really meant a lot to me that he joined the podcast. Please leave your comments in the usual places and if you message me, I always respond. Until next time.